0: Mark chapter 14, once again, as we're making our journey through the gospel of Mark, and you know, as we're going through Mark, um, we're not commenting or giving a teaching on every verse. Uh, We are reading through the entire Gospel of Mark, and that's why, you know, we always have our scripture reading every Sunday. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm just taking uh, select portions of the passage, and we're highlighting that. And so we want to continue to do that today, and we're going to focus in on just a portion of our text here today. But let's remember the background. Let me just set the stage for you once again. So Um, All of this is happening in the context of the Passover meal. And we considered that last time the Passover meal had been eaten by Jesus and the disciples. And uh, its true meaning had been revealed by the Lord. Now, remember, we talked about how the Passover was both a commemorative event. It was to remember God's deliverance of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. But it was also a prophetic event that was speaking of um, the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. And so that's the element that Jesus now introduces into the Passover meal as he institutes Um, During that, what we commonly call the Last Supper, he institutes the new covenant. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup uh, of the new covenant in my blood that is shed. And so all of that now has taken place after the meal. um, They had sung a hymn together. And then Jesus and the 11 disciples, Judas has now left them. Jesus and the 11 disciples make their way to the Mount of Olives, and it is here, as we read, uh, that Jesus is arrested and led away to be condemned to death by the religious leaders. Now, there's a lot with the arrest and the subsequent trial and the things that happen uh, still to come, so we're going to leave that for the next time. And today, I want to... uh, focus on what has been called the agony in the garden. Now, if you grew up in a denomination of any sort, or especially any kind of a liturgical denomination like Roman Catholicism, or Episcopalian, or Lutheran, or uh, Presbyterian, then you probably heard this just this term of the agony in the garden. I know when I was a kid growing up in a Roman Catholic context, I, somebody mentioned the agony of the garden. I knew exactly what they were talking about. They were talking about Jesus and that time there in the garden where he uh, went through this intense time. And so we want to focus in on that today. But before we do that, I, I want us to just take a minute. And there's something in the text here that's somewhat incidental, but it's very important. And I want to point that out to us. And that is the absolute confidence that is expressed by Jesus in the certainty of the scriptures. And and I want to do this just for a second because we live in a time when there is a relentless attack upon the trustworthiness and the authority of the Bible. But you know, Jesus makes clear statements to the effect that uh, the scriptures are authoritative and, and you know, he uh, trusts in them explicitly. But also sometimes it's more incidental. And we see it here. There are three places in the verses that we read where we see that being expressed. Verse 27 and 28 and then verse 49. So really quickly in verse 27, Jesus said to the disciples. He said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus is telling them what's going to happen later this night. And he says, it's going to happen because the scriptures predicted that it would happen. So he has absolute confidence that this is going to happen. The shepherd will be uh, struck and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. But then in verse 20, 28, he says, uh, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And then down in verse 49, um, in relation to all of this, Jesus said, but the scripture must be fulfilled. So the point again is simply this. We can trust in the Bible as being accurate, as being God's word truly, as being authoritative, and we can trust in it for a number of reasons, which um, I'm sure the unbelievable conference will talk about some of those. We can can trust in it for a number of reasons. There's so many great uh, arguments and defense of the scripture, but the best and the simplest one is that Jesus trusted in it. Jesus believed that every word of The Bible, and in his case it would have been the Old Testament, uh, he believed that it was all the word of God. And if we believe, and we should believe, and there's plenty of evidence for this, if we believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, if we, we believe that he is God who becomes a human being, and he says that you can completely trust scripture, then you can completely trust scripture. And so if you... Maybe know some of uh, other arguments that you might add when you're talking to people who maybe doubt this. Uh, That's great. Bring all of those things to bear on it. But never forget just this one simple fact, Jesus believed God's word. And so we can too. All right, so that's just a quick little side note. But like I said, what I wanna focus on today really is what happened here in the garden of Gethsemane, so we pick up in verse thirty-two, and it says, "Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane." Now, all of this, uh, the the geographical um, location of this is the Mount of Olives. So, when you leave the city, and in those days, they more than likely go into the Mount of Olives. They would have left the city through the eastern gate. And then you go up the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is called the Mount of Olives for a reason. It was filled with olive orchards, and it still is to this day. And so there was a particular place there on that side of the mount called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press. So there was a particular place where the press was, and that's the area that Jesus gathers With his disciples. Now, it's called Gethsemane, it's called the olive press, but there's something even more to it. And what we see here is this is the place where Jesus himself is pressed on every side by the forces of darkness and by the reality of what he is about to endure. He is being pressed and that just the the reality of him becoming the sacrifice for the sin of the world, that is all weighing in on him and it's weighing in on him at this place. And so as we read on, it says that as they came to this place, the olive press, he said to his disciples sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and listen to what it says. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. So Jesus now expresses to them in these very vivid terms The anguish that he is now facing. So here in our translation, uh, he was troubled and deeply distressed. You know, various versions will translate it slightly differently. But in this case, I think the King James Version really does uh, translate it probably the best. Because in the King James Version, it says he began to be sore amazed and very heavy. Now, sore amazed, what in the world does that mean? It means literally that he was struck with terror. Now, this is so fascinating when you think about Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has found himself in uh, many different dangerous types of situations. Um, He's found himself in dangerous situations because of nature. Remember, he was out in the sea, and and the seasoned fishermen thought that the the boat was going to sink because of the intensity of the storm. But Jesus was completely calm. He stood up. He rebuked the wind and the waves, and that was the end of it. Uh, Jesus found himself encountered by demoniacs, and and one of them in in particular was so vicious that no one dared to even go near this person. They had bound him with chains. He busted those chains. He couldn't be restrained. And, and yet Jesus confronted those uh, demonic forces without, a, without flinching at all. And, and Jesus had had confrontations with the leaders of the nation, the men who had power to deal with him severely. And in all of those cases, he, he really was never phased. He even spoke of the fact that he would die. By crucifixion, he told them, he talked to them about the fact that he was going to be crucified. And yet, now, for the first time ever, we find that Jesus is having an experience that he's never had before. He is stricken with terror at this very moment. So, something's happening here in the garden that is extraordinary. Now, it go, goes on to read that um, Jesus said, after that, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And I like the way the NLT translate it, my, translates it, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And so here's Jesus, there's, there's something going on that has brought him to this place that he's never been to before. Now, from you know, you put the gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the ones who recorded this specific uh, detailed account for us. And they each tell us a little uh, bit more about what's happening. So as we put them all together, Jesus comes, he's there with his disciples, he tells them to wait here, he takes Peter, James, and John, he goes away with them, and then he goes a distance from them, and he falls down, and he begins to to. Pray to, to seek God and then there's an occasion where he goes back to the disciples and he speaks to them so he does this three different times but Luke tells us after that first intense uh, moment Luke tells us that an angel then appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him so we see again the extraordinary nature of what's going on here This is so intense for Jesus that an angel is sent to strengthen him during this time. But then Luke tells us something that's even more astounding. Luke tells us this, And being in agony, he prayed earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus' sweat blood This, the kind of stress and pressure that he is under has produced this phenomena that can occur, uh, in a person who is under a tremendous amount of stress where the capillaries just under the skin break and blood begins to ooze out of your pores. And so this is where Jesus has now come to. He's come to this place of this intense, intense agony. But here's the question, why? What, what is different about this moment? And although we'll get into more detail about it in a little bit further, but I wanna just let you in on it right now. What's happening right now is that Jesus is being allowed now to actually have a foretaste of what he will experience the following day. So up until this point... Jesus has known everything that was coming. He's known it, but now he is having an experience of it. And this is what's brought that uh kind of uh reaction, the the need for the angel to come and strengthen him. And the the sweating, great drops of blood, it's due to the fact that it's like the veil was was pulled back and Jesus just momentarily got a glimpse into what it was going to cost to redeem humanity. What the price that he would pay, the suffering that he would endure in order to fulfill the will of God and reconcile mankind to God. Now, as Jesus is facing this, as we go on, He is praying, and he prays two things. Number one, notice in verse 35, it says that he prayed, he fell on the ground, he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, Jesus, there's a, John records for us John doesn't give us the the account like we have it in Matthew Mark and Luke but John tells us an interesting thing that Jesus said and it's at the same time Jesus said he spoke of himself and he said my soul is sorrowful even to death but what should I say father save me from this hour no It is for this very hour that I came into the world. Father, glorify your son, that he might glorify you. So Jesus is, at this point, he is shrinking back from this reality that he's about to face and questioning, is there a way that this hour can pass? Now, it, it's finally come. Now, one of the things that will help us to understand this better is if we understand the humanity of Jesus, because this, this is an area where um, I think we, we miss it sometimes. We forget that Jesus was thoroughly human. Jesus wasn't like part human and part God. God. Jesus was entirely human. He was as human as we are, except sin. He, he had no sin, but he was a human being who was also God. And so when Jesus experienced the, the things that he experienced here in this world, he did not experience them as God, he experienced them as a human being. Now, I say that because oftentimes I think we're tempted to think, and I know I used to think this when I was a really young Christian, I thought, well, of course, Jesus could go through that because he, you know, he was Jesus. He was God. I mean, that, you know, that would crush us, but, but he could handle it because he was God. But you see, if we think like that, we're not understanding the nature of Jesus. Truly Jesus was God. But guess what? He didn't function as God when he came into the world. He functioned as a human being. If Jesus was looked like a person, but he was really God just living in a human body, then how could we ever relate to him? You see, he came and he subjected himself to the full human experience so that we would know That the one who we cry out to, the one that we pray to, we would know that he knows what it is that we're going through because he himself had been there. And so we can't forget this. And also we can't forget because somebody actually said this to me after the first service. Um, They had a question and then this came up in the conversation. They said, but yeah, so yeah, Jesus went through all of this, but he knew that he was going to be raised from the dead in three days so of course that would have taken the brunt uh, uh, away and i said no this is where you're incorrect jesus believed he would be raised from the dead he believed he would be raised from the dead because the scriptures said that he would But it wasn't as though, you see, because if we look at it the other way, then we're thinking of Jesus acting as God. So, yeah, I'm going to go to the cross. It's going to be tough, I know. But no sweat because 72 hours later, I'm going to be back and it's all going to be done. And, you know, that's not how he went into it. Jesus went into it as a human being having to put his faith in God's word that he would be raised from the dead and from what we know from further scripture and we'll get to it as we go on uh there is this point where as far as Jesus can tell from his human experience god has forsaken him god has abandoned him so far from being there going okay let's just get this over with because you know we got to get the resurrection here Uh, Jesus is not doing that at all. He's experiencing this abandonment. So with all of this pressing in on him, Jesus says, his request is, if this hour can pass, let it pass. And what he's really asking is simply this. If there's any other way that sins can be forgiven, if there's any other way that reconciliation between God and mankind can be accomplished, let it be so. So now that he's come to this place, his humanity is feeling the whole brunt of this. And he's asking God if there's another way. Then secondly, he says this, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father. So Abba is the intimate term for father. Uh, and it's, it's like a, a son appealing to his father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup Away from me. God, you can do anything. Take this cup away. Now, the cup, Jesus uses this terminology for a reason. Because the cup was oftentimes a reference to God's judgment, his fury, his wrath being poured out. Let me give you an example from uh, the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 25. The Lord speaks to Jeremiah Um, And he says, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So it's the cup of the wrath of God, the book of Revelation in the latter part of Revelation. It talks more specifically about that as well. So when Jesus says, take this cup from me, what he's referring to is this experience of your judgment that i'm about to enter into oh father if there's any other way all things are possible for you if there's any other way take this cup from me now what this tells us because the cup was not taken is there was no other way there is no other way for human beings to be reconciled to god Apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, it is impossible. Our sins are the barrier. Our sins keep us from God. And apart from the one taking our sins upon himself and bearing the judgment for them, there is no way to get to God. The very fact that Jesus died on the cross is proof that there's no other way to God. You know, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, although it's not exactly the same thing, but the principle is there because he's writing to people who were thinking that they could be justified before God by the law. Paul says, if there was a law that could make you righteous, then Christ died in vain. Why would Christ die if there's a law that you could just keep and that will make you righteous before God? And the same thing is true here. If there is some other way that people can be saved if there's some way that our sins can be forgiven, if there's some way that the gap between us and God can be closed, if there's some other way, then Jesus would never have died. But he did die. And he died because it wasn't possible that it could happen any other way. And so as Jesus requests this, uh, the cup passing from him But notice, nevertheless. So in his humanity and in in his grief, Father, if this cup can pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus fully submits himself to the plan of God for the redemption of mankind And that is for him to go into the abyss that he is seeing before him at this point. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who was um, a great Puritan scholar, he preached a sermon on Gethsemane. And let me read to you just a little portion of that sermon because he tells us a couple of things that are really important. Uh, So here's what he said. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Of course, he's using uh, descriptive language here to try to prove the point. It wasn't like there was an actual furnace Jesus was looking into, but it's that's the idea. And so then he goes on and he says this. He says, there are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great, and two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to, it's being properly said, Christ of his own act and choice endured sufferings that were so great. It was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense of, how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. And this was given to him in his agony. So what, um, what Edwards is saying here is that in order for the commitment of Jesus to do what he did to be fully legitimized, Jesus had to know what he was doing. He had to understand the full extent of what he was going to enter into. And so that's why he is given, in a sense, this preview. So that seeing fully what it is and then agreeing to it makes his love even that much more intense. That's what Edward said. His love is so wonderful because... He was willing to endure sufferings that were so great. It wasn't as though there was any mystery now at this point. Now, up until this point, there would have been some mystery. Up until this point, there would have been the unknown element in it all. And Jesus was committed all the way, all the way through. Even though he knew, he like... We said earlier he he said he that he was going to be betrayed he said that he was going uh to be beaten he was going to be rejected uh he was going to be crucified he said that that but now he's actually tasting it and having tasted it with that full understanding of what it is he commits to it and that's where edward says that's where you see the magnitude of his love but then secondly, you see that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. See, this is the thing that's absolutely amazing that he didn't do this for innocent people, good people who just got trapped in something that they didn't really have any responsibility for. He did this for people who are wicked, he did it for the rebels. And Edward says this is this shows us how wonderful his love is. Now, it's very common today in our Western way of thinking to challenge the goodness of God, to challenge the love of God. And you hear people all the time say, well, you know, if, if God is like this, then I'm not going to believe in a God like that. I believe in a God of love and a God of love would never do anything like that. And I hear people say that. I see it on social media. I know people personally who are saying things like that. I recently saw something where, uh, you know, somebody I know put something on uh, Instagram or Facebook, but it was this whole thing about, you know, how could a God of love do this? And how could a God of love let people suffer? How could a God of love send people to hell and then gloat over them, uh, you know, as he tortures them eternally and all of this? And, and, you know, I I read this stuff and sometimes I just get super annoyed, but... um, But I thought, you know, here's the problem. The problem is simply this. People who say those kinds of things, what they've done is they've made God in their own image. So they've reduced God to the way they are. And they say, well, I would never do that, so God could never do that. Well... Listen. You're not God. I'm not God. They're not God. We we don't even know the greatness, the glory, the grandeur of God is it is God is incomprehensible. Meaning that we can never fully ever fully know and understand God thoroughly. It's impossible. God is infinite. We're finite. And even when we leave these mortal bodies and are then in God's presence, he will still be incomprehensible in that sense. We will never know all there is to know about God. You can't. So if you think about it, here we are. Now, not only are we finite and God is infinite, but we are sinners and our thinking is twisted. And our understanding is twisted. And our knowledge is limited. But then we say, well, I can't believe in a God who would do this or that. I can't believe in a God who would send somebody to hell. You know? Let's not even talk about a God who judges. Let's talk about a God who loves. And... I believe that none of us can even comprehend a God of love. We say, I believe in a God of love. What does that even mean? Well, in this case, in the case of the true God, here's what it means. That none of us, regardless of our benevolence, regardless of our compassion, none of us love like this. This is what God did. He took his one and only son His beloved son, his most cherished possession, if you will. And he gave his life in exchange for criminals. Now, I can tell you right now, I would never take one of my kids. And let's just say there's, uh, we'll just go to San Quentin. just one prison and there are X amount of people on death row. We say, you know what? I know these people are hardened criminals. I know they're, they're just, you know, still bent on all of that evil, but I want to see them released. I want to see them have another chance. So I'm going to take my son and Since they're on death row, we're going to put him to death so they can all go free. Now, is there any human being that would do anything like that? I can answer for all 7 billion of us. No. (laughs) Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to do that. Let's be realistic. That's what God did. That's what God did. Because we are sinners, yes. A sinner is a person who missed the mark. But guess what? We're also transgressors. And a transgressor doesn't just miss the mark. It's not just that I'm a bad shot. A transgressor just says, I don't even care about the target. I don't want to hit the target. I want to do things my way. And that's the world that God gave his son for. So when people are talking about a God of, I don't believe a God of blood can do this or that or the other thing, what do, I mean, it's, uh, to me, it's unbelievable that God of love did what, it did what he did. So since I can't even comprehend that, since I can't even fathom that, I think it would probably be wise on our part to just say, well, you know, I don't understand how there could be a judgment of the magnitude that the Bible says, but I'm not God. So I'm going to leave that with him because he obviously knows why that has to be. And so, that's what Edwards found amazing. And that was the wonder of Christ's love, that he would be willing to suffer to the extent that he suffered and that he would do it for the people he did it for, us sinners. Now, in Gethsemane, Jesus stared in the face of eternal judgment. He saw in all of its horrors the cost of redeeming sinful human beings. He was struck with terror by what he saw, but said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You know, this reminds me of, I immediately in my mind, I go to Hebrews chapter 12, where it says to consider Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that was set before him. How could Jesus do this? How could he submit to this? How could he agree? How could he say, Father, let this cut pass"? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How could he do that? for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? There were two things. The first was the joy of pleasing the Father. Jesus said that he was laying down his life because the Father willed it. And it was his pleasure to do the will of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him is saving us and being able to bring us into eternal communion with himself and being able to know us and have us know him and and that experience. That's how Jesus was able to give himself over to that horrific, terrifying situation he could do it because of the joy that was set before him. He could do it because he knew that it pleased the father and it would save humanity that he loves. So amazing. Now, the crucifixion, I'm closing with this here. The crucifixion is many things. And of course, we're heading there. So this is the, the you know, preview of it. But the crucifixion, when you think about it, um, we think of it as a display of God's love. And that's right. God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So it's absolutely right to think of the crucifixion as a display of God's love. But it's also true to think of the crucifixion as a universal display of God's wrath against sin. That's what's happening here. Jesus is bearing the punishment for our sin. He suffered that wrath so we would not have to. He drank the cup of God's fury on our behalf. That's the the truth. So now, the question is this. How can we do anything less than give our lives entirely over to living for his praise, honor, and glory. You know, God's way of wooing us, if you will, to himself is always through an appeal based on love. It's through an appeal based on love now, there is a judgment, and we can, we can sometimes appeal on that basis. Hey, you need to repent. You need to turn because there is a judgment coming. And, and although there are places where that is the way God appeals to certain people under certain circumstances, the, the first and initial appeal is always love. God doesn't want you to turn to him simply because if you don't, you're going to be judged. God wants you to turn to him because he loves you. And he's demonstrated that love for you. And he wants to have a reciprocal love relationship with us. But when we get this, when this really strikes us, we just think, well, how could I do anything less? If Jesus fully knowing what... The price was that he was about to pay, committed to it, not my will but yours be done, how could I do anything less than praise, honor, and glorify him? And what I mean by praise, honor, and glorify him is simply just this. Live my life for him. Give myself over to his will. Not my will but yours be done. And oh, just as It was with Jesus who released himself into the will of God. Look at the tremendous blessing that has come to all of the world because of that act. And as we yield ourselves to God, it results in blessing. It results in blessing for us and it results in blessing for others. So God help us to do that based upon the deep, deep love of Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for your deep love that we see displayed as we look at the experience you had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, where you were pressed, just as the olives were crushed and pressed. Lord, you were crushed there. And you submitted to it for the joy of saving us and knowing us. And being able to have us know you and experience you and and to have that for all eternity. How amazing. And Lord, would you help us today? Help us to see these things clearly. Help us to realize the magnitude of your love for us. And help us to respond in kind to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.